the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Happy December 29th, 2020. As history unfolds, it'll be interesting, most interesting to me, how this year, 2020, will be seen and written about. Was the main story race, illness, the election? Will any serious historians tie them together as they think they should be colligated? What will not be written about is an interesting question as well. China, perhaps, the media, certain social destruction that was neglected. It's been said that history is written by the victors, which frightens me if my thesis, I know, controversial, is right, that we are an ever-increasing liberal left country. Start perhaps not with our future history already. Our current history, the way we study the past, is being rewritten. More and more schools are adopting the 1619 Project, and there are major efforts to continue to obliterate the teaching of what we used to call the Western canon. That effort began in earnest at the college level in the 1980s, but now, as the Wall Street Journal reports the following, it's going younger, much younger. Quote, a sustained effort is underway to deny children access to literature. Under the slogan, hashtag disrupt texts, Critical theory ideologues, school teachers, and Twitter agitators are purging and propagandizing against classic texts, everything from Homer to F. Scott Fitzgerald to Dr. Seuss. Their ethos holds that children shouldn't have to read stories written in anything other than the present-day vernacular, especially those, quote, in which racism, sexism, ableism, anti-Semitism, and other forms of hate are the norm close quote, as young novelist Padma Venkatraman writes in School Library Journal. No author is valuable enough to spare, Miss Venkatraman instructs, saying, quote, absolving Shakespeare of responsibility by mentioning that he lived at a time when hate-ridden sentiments prevailed risks sending a subliminal message that academic excellence outweighs hateful rhetoric, close quote. As John Hinderocker put it, sounds like she's the one who's hateful. Consider how this works up and down the lot. Abraham Lincoln High School in San Francisco is being renamed because, according to the leader of the naming committee, has anything sounded more Orwellian than such a committee? According to him, Abraham Lincoln did, quote, not say anything about black lives mattering. May we spend a moment just on that? This about the man Lincoln who gave his life to end slavery. This about the man Lincoln who walks through Richmond in 1864 after excuse me 1865 after the civil war where the following took place walking through richmond several black former slaves notice him one yells bless the lord there is the great messiah the man dropped his spade rushed toward the bank where lincoln was standing before the marines could stop him he fell at abraham lincoln's feet Bless the Lord, I knowed him as soon as I seed him. He come at last to free his children. Abraham, surprised and embarrassed, looked down at the upturned face. 
How in the world did the old fellow know who he was? Photographs, perhaps? In an instant, the other blacks around him had dropped their spades and were falling to their knees around Abraham Lincoln. Old Abe Lincoln bent low. The old man, I'm sorry, the old man, the first one, bent low to kiss Abraham Lincoln's feet. Don't, old Abraham Lincoln said. Don't kneel to me. That isn't right. You must kneel only to God who gave you your freedom. They got up reluctantly, but obediently. Excuse us, Master Lincoln, we means no disrespect, the old man beamed, but after being so many years in the desert without water, it's mighty pleasant to be looking at last on our spring of life. That's from the John Cribb rendering. So in the 1860s, black Americans wanted to and in fact did kneel to Abraham Lincoln. In the 2020s, the effort is to remove Lincoln's name because he didn't say anything about black lives mattering. Pause on that a moment. I've been talking about this a bit, some of my closest friends and favorite people. As I mentioned, it was beginning at the college level in the 1980s. Bill Bennett turned me toward a speech he gave in 1986. He said this, and I thought it important, because if there's one thing about America just now, I think it's a vacuum of judgment and sense. History is a means of developing judgment and good sense. It is as well an engaging human story, and yet it is more. If our students lack knowledge of history, they lack a great deal. There are things from history, from the study of history, that they simply should know. What should they know? This is one of the questions many do not wish to answer, but let us try. Among other things, our students should know who said, I am the state, and who said, I have a dream. They should know about the Donner Party and about slavery. They should know about Abigail Adams and why there was a Berlin Wall. They should know something about the, Constitu the Convention of 1787 and about the conventions of good behavior. They should know what greatness looks like and how greatness crumbles dies, and sometimes rises again. They should recognize famous American names like Aaron Burr and John C. Calhoun and James Fenimore Cooper and Dorothea Dix and Stephen A. Douglas and Frederick Douglass and Jonathan L. Edwards and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Nathaniel Hawthorne. They should be familiar with the Battle Hymn of the Republic, the Declaration of Independence, the Preamble to the Constitution, John Kennedy's inaugural address, Lincoln's second inaugural, and the Gettysburg Address. They should not be strangers to certain words, words like we hold these truths. These are the times that try men's souls. I have not yet begun to fight. A house divided against itself cannot stand. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. These are things they should know. These are things that history can teach them. But there is yet one more argument for history. It is the argument that Lezek Kolakowski identified in his Jefferson lecture in 1985 when he said, to learn history is to learn and to know who we are. It is to learn why and for what we are responsible. And it is to learn how this responsibility is to be taken up. In other words, history in Kolakowski's view is nothing less than a source of personal identity itself, a means of acquiring a sense of connectedness with a tradition, with a community, with a past. It is a way of locating ourselves in time and space, of acquiring the values and ideals by which we wish to live our lives, and of returning to the wellsprings of our being as a people and as a nation. And the current erosion of a historically defined sense of belonging, Kolakowski warns, plays havoc with the lives of young people. 
It threatens their ability to withstand possible trials of the future. I think Kelikowski is right. Acquiring this historically defined sense of belonging is especially important here in the United States. For strictly speaking, the United States did not simply develop. Rather, the United States was created in order to realize a specific political vision. Today is in the past. It is the memory of that political vision that defines us as Americans. Memory is the glue that holds our political community together, and history is organized memory for the living. By studying American history, and yes, by celebrating its heroes for each generation, noting its failures as well as its achievements, our students are invited to grasp the value of our political tradition and to do nothing less than to know themselves in their political community. The left knows this too, which is why I often redound or mention screw tapes instruction to Wormwood, his nephew. Do recall you are there to fuddle them, confuse them. Or Milan Kundera, the first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history, then have someone write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. Back to Bennett, if I may. A few questions. Do our students realize that they are the heirs of the Greeks, the Hebrews, the Romans, and the early Christians who invented Western civilization? Does today's social studies curriculum bring them into contact with the great cloud of witnesses, St. Paul called them, who are encouraging us to run with patience this race that is set before us? Are we confident that the principles of the founders, the traditions embodied in our institutions, the memories of our forefathers' sacrifices, the examples of our statesmen, will be alive in the next generation's minds and hearts? Are we confident of that? I do not think we can be as confident as we should be, but it is not our students' fault. Our students, our young citizens, are the heirs of a precious historical legacy. Let it never be said of us that we failed as a nation because we neglected to pass on this legacy to our children, to all of them. Remember that whatever their ancestry of blood, they are all, we are all, equally heirs of the same tradition. In a fundamental sense, we all have the same fathers, our founding fathers, giving us a different meaning to the word patriotism here. Let it be said that we told our children their story, the whole story, the long record of our glories, our failures, our aspirations, our sins, our achievements, and our victories. Then let us leave it to them to determine their own view of it all, America in the totality of its acts. If we can dedicate ourselves to that endeavor, then our students will discern history and the story of their past will be the truth. They will cherish that truth, and the truth will keep them free. And that is yet one more reason why we study history here in America. To take all this seriously is to reach, I believe, a very worrisome conclusion. The eradication of knowledge and the rewriting of our history for political purposes and causes at odds with our historical legacy and founding purposes can be nothing less, I believe, than civilizational abuse, especially if you think civilization is worth saving and that the way to do it is by wedding freedom to equality and equality to freedom the way our founders intended. I know of no other way. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I have uh, been privileged to know amazing people, uh, some very amazing people, uh, some famous, some not. One of the more famous ones I was privileged to know was Herman Cain, who uh, was one of the um, people we lost this uh, this year. He was the former CEO of Godfather's Pizza, and there is a great documentary on about his life available exclusively at SalemNow.com. Poor to CEO. I think it's one of the most inspirational and entertaining films of the year. I'm encouraging you to check out From Poor to CEO or Poor to CEO, The Life Story of Herman Cain, The Incredible Journey of Herman Cain at SalemNow.com. Make sure to use the promo code PHOENIX. To save 20%, watch Poor to CEO, the Herman Cain story at SalemNow.com. I talked about in the monologue something out of San Francisco called the school's renaming committee. You know, they actually do have one. It was created about two years ago by the San Francisco Unified School District. I don't know if they – I really don't know if they have ever even read George Orwell. Probably not because he's dead white male literature, right, like Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss. I wonder if his doctorate is more important than Jill Biden's, by the way, Dr. Seuss's. In any event – sorry for the digression. Um, I don't know if they realize how Orwellian such a thing sounds, school renaming committee. Um, But – It's not just schools' names, and it's not just San Francisco. My friend Steve forwarded me the story out of the University of Michigan, which is, you know, it's not Ivy League, but, you know, it's probably one of the top ten universities in the country, and certainly several of its graduate schools are, you know, even rated higher than that at times. University of Michigan. Um, It has a task force which um, is – Forbidding, recommending, um, forbidding and recommending, depending on the word, that certain words can't be used at the University of Michigan anymore. You want to know what some of these words are? It's the Words Matter Task Force, by the way. It sounds equally Orwellian to me. And it's listed two dozen words that can be perceived as offensive to people. Um, Picnic. The word picnic is out at the University of Michigan, as is dummy, as is disabled, as is handicapped, and it gives alternative use, alternative words that you should use. So for picnic, for example, you didn't know the word picnic was racist, right? Did you know that it was? It isn't, actually, but they think it, they, they think it is. It's because some people think it is, but that's it comes from the French meaning gathering. So guess what? The suggested alternative word for picnic is at the university at the University of Michigan, gathering, gathering. So, according to the Daily Mail, um, instead of saying crazy, staff are encouraged to say unthinkable, while sanity check should be replaced by coherence check. The word picnic appears to be banned because of false suggestions on the Internet that originates from the racist extrajudicial killing of African-Americans, but it actually comes from the 17th century French word piquenique, which describes social gatherings in which attendees each contributed with a portion of food. 
So it's where fake news, internet rumor, changes university guidelines to change the English language. Okay, so when you hear Dennis Prager or someone else, maybe me, railing against the benefit of going to a university to get knowledge, understand you're not getting knowledge, you're getting unknowledge. You're, you're having knowledge removed. If you thought pic- if you went to the University of Michigan thinking picnic was a perfectly fine word and you went there, they would teach you it isn't, you were unlearned of something. You were right going in and wrong once you got there. Think about that. You were right going into the University of Michigan and wrong having spent time there. Not to be um, outdone, Victor Davis Hansen has a great piece um, that is out today, A Guide to Woke Speak. We do need these guides because a lot of people don't understand just what the heck is going on. I think a lot of us are waking up increasingly. A lot of us, more and more of us, are waking up, whether we're reading the paper, reading the news, reading stories like this, and wondering if this is still a country we recognize. Um, here's some of the vocabulary of the woke lexicon uh, Victor Hansen uh, helps us with. Anti-racism. Espousing this generic compounded ism is far preferable to accusing particular people of being racists and then being expected to produce evidence of their concrete actions and words to prove such indictments. Instead, one composes fighting for anti-racism and thereby imply that all those whom one opposes, disagrees with, or finds distasteful de facto must be in favor of racism. Anti-racism is a useful salvo for students, teachers, administrators, public employees, political appointees, media personnel to use peremptorily. You know what peremptorily means, right? To cut off debate. Declare from the start that you are working for anti-racism, and then anyone who disagrees with you, therefore, must be racist or antithetically pro-racism. Oddly, such woke-speak anti-adjectives denote opposition to something that no one claims to be for. Isn't that interesting? For each proclaimed anti-racist, anti-imperialist, or anti-colonialist, there's almost no one who wishes to be a racist or is known to be a colonialist or an imperialist. These villains mostly come to life only through the use of their anti-adjectives. Another way to put it would be they only come to use through someone's fictive imagination. I have more to say about this. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Time for our culture and economy update with John Dombrowski of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com, his great and fun website. Uh, John, how are you, man? Fantastic. I love that song. Yeah, don't you? I know. Everything about it. Everything about it. I had a caller last week Mm -hmm. saying, what? Does it mean for the economy if we don't, we being Republicans, keep the Senate? And uh, Grover Norquist for Americans for Tax Reform did a pretty good analysis based on what could happen next week in Georgia right? Uh, when it comes to taxes, corporate and individual. Do you want to say something about that, what you saw there? Yeah, so you've got the two uh, seats that are up, right, yep. in Georgia. Right. And, uh, of course, if that did happen and they both went to the Democrats, right. that would change the uh, the tide, I guess, right. as it right. would be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is a really interesting question, too, because I get this from a lot of my clients, sure. Seth, right now, worried about what's going to happen if this does, does occur. Right. 
Uh, if it does change, then uh, the op- opposite, opposite of what's happening now, there's going to be, uh, as we already know, President-elect Biden is going to be repealing. Uh, that's at least what he says, yep, yep. The, the Trump tax cuts. Right. Uh, this, If we look at what happened here in the state of Arizona, even, it's interesting how our state income tax now has been increased, mm-hmm. uh, which is certainly going to, you know, probably go through the whole country at this point as we mm-hmm. start to see taxes going to go up for everything. In mm-hmm. this particular article, they're talking about a variety of different mm-hmm. uh, taxes here, which uh, it's going to affect the market in general because the middle class is really, as we know, going to be affected the most. Yes, corporate uh, tax rates came down under President Trump, but also middle class Americans got tax cuts. And this was really important to keep that economy or to get the economy moving and that's, I believe, how we were able to get through the pandemic and, you know, come out of this in some form of, of still prosperity where a lot of countries are unable to do that. You know, that's an important point I was making early on, and I haven't said it in a while, but you're absolutely right. If our economy wasn't as strong as it was in March, April, May, mm-hmm. think about how much worse the devastation would have been. You know, even though the Fed didn't have much room in the way of uh, – you know, reducing rates really any lower than they already were. Right. They were able to maintain uh, the ability to at least float more money into the economy mm-hmm. uh, to pass the first COVID relief bill. Now, of course, the second one, I think the market was kind of open mixed today and it wound up closing down uh, because there's still uncertainty around this bill, uh, whether it's going to be increased to $2,000 or not. But at least Americans are going to get a check for $600. That and we're class. still... You know, above the 30,000 mark, aren't we, at the Dow Jones? Oh, well, yeah. The markets today, actually, intraday, uh, did hit an all-time high. Ah, So we're still at record highs, Seth, uh, with everything that we've been through for the year. Which is, I think, reversible, by the way, with a corporate tax increase. We certainly could see some some stress put on Which will affect everyone with an IRA or a A 401k, won't it? It it will, and that's why I I am uh, always talking about... Uh, investing in specific sectors of the market and not necessarily taking as broad of a uh, you know a, approach by just throwing a dart and buying an index. Right. I mean it's it's good to buy an index, but you 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 get the good with the bad or the bad with the good as mm-hmm. it would be mm-hmm. when you buy an index. And we can be specific when we're buying certain sectors of the market and target only the areas that we would like to, but still diversify our portfolio that way as well. It's uh, it's put pretty starkly, and I hope eyebrow raising when Grover writes that uh, Biden wants to raise the corporate tax rate from twenty one to twenty eight, which would mm-hmm. put us higher in corporate taxes than China. Than China. Yeah. Right? It would make yeah. us less competitive than mm-hmm. China, whereas now we are more competitive than China. Yeah, obviously. Uh, but if if this does happen, we're going to have to wait and see. You know how how robust is the economy? How much can we right. take mm-hmm. uh, before we start to feel the the pain of what uh, they're talking about doing here? Yeah, I want everyone to read this uh, piece. It's over at Fox News, uh, Grover Norquist piece. Georgia Senate runoffs tax increases coming if Democrats win these races. The Obamacare tax too. Uh, is go- if if that's restored, which which Biden has said he wants to, and he would right. need the Democrat support if he had a Democratic majority to do that, that would also be a highly regressive uh, tax back on American. Yeah, families. implementing yeah. the uh, the um, what was it? The, the individual mandate. The individual tax. Yeah. mandate, yeah. right? Yeah. Which that again, you know, a lot of people are are happy that that was pulled away, but. Yeah. 
uh, that can be put back in yeah, real easy. Yeah, all of it can be. All of it can be, J.D. Thanks for the Hey, a new year's coming, yeah. Seth. Yep. Uh, again, if folks need to get in touch with me, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. Securities and advisory services offered to Clint Wynn Securities LLC, a member of Finran Sipic and Investment Advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Clint Wynn Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank, Thank you, you, John Dombrowski. Talk tomorrow. You bet. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. That's what I think a trumpet should sound like. Someone says, what is a trumpet? I think it should sound like that. I just do. Uh, 602-508-0960. Andy Biggs coming up. And, of course, because it's Tuesday, we will be joined by Hugh and Lewis Hallman to talk COVID, politics, anything else you want. We tend to do a fair amount of epistemology with them. Joe Biden gave a talk today. Um, it's not worth calling them press conferences because he um, doesn't take questions from the press. He just comes out, gives a little talk, and goes away, which, um, okay, I guess we're going to have to get used to that. I I don't suspect that his uh, fort will be press conferences the way Joe Biden's was. And already CNN is openly admitting in an article in The Atlantic they plan to cover Joe Biden differently. I can't believe they're openly admitting it. They're saying the quiet parts out loud. But that's the point. They don't care anymore. Who was I interviewing with yesterday? Ariel Davidson. She was saying how the press didn't do its job this year when it came to COVID or for that matter, any other any number of other things. And I said, and she agreed, um, that they have a different perception of their job than we do. They don't see their job anymore as being uh, down the middle um, investigators of truth calling into question government action. They see their job as umpiring for one side only to affect the election, whether it's Senate, House or presidency, of one side only with an investigation of one side only and a censorship of anything any of their colleagues may lapse into thinking is actual fair journalism, as the New York Post learned. But in any event, we can come back to that later. Joe Biden, in his speech today, said, Bill, I want, I want your attention on this because you, you and I were talking about this off air and I wanted to get your, your, your take. The way you put it was good. He said, we have to anticipate that the infections over the holidays will produce soaring case counts in January and soaring death tolls in February. Infections over the holidays will produce soaring case counts in January and soaring death tolls in February. And then he said it'll get worse before it gets better. And you said what about that phrase? I liked how you put it. You're in agreement. You agree in part and dissent in part, right? The worst is yet to come, yeah. but not in deaths, in government tyranny. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes one kind of shudder to think when Politico is openly asking in a headline, what more can California do to, 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 to mediate or remediate its increased case count? Um you know, I I remember earlier in the year we thought case count might might actually be something you want to see more of in certain respects, especially if it's understood to be that the, you have 
a declining rate of fatality with an increasing rate of death, meaning, er, excuse me, an increasing rate of infection. As those two points get farther and farther apart, that's a good thing. I still am of the belief, we can talk to the Hallmans about it, that we, um, we are undercounting cases. Um, in, 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 at the same time, I think we're overcounting deaths, but I think we're undercounting cases because not everyone who has it gets tested. Not everyone who has it knows they have it. Furthermore, I don't, that, that's why I don't think cases actually is a, the case metric is a metric that tells us very much, doesn't tell me much at all unless we learn more about the infection from it in populations that are more vulnerable. It just doesn't mean that much. But Joe Biden's main takeaway from his speech today, more than anything, was to talk about the importance of wearing masks. So much so that at the end of his speech, he said, God bless the United States of America. God bless the troops. And wear a mask. He, he put that at the end of God bless America and God bless the troops. Usually you end it right about there. God bless the troops. God bless America. That, that's a good enough place to end it. We now have a, I guess you might call it in, in rhetoric, a, tri, a new tricolon where it's God bless the standard things and wear a mask. Helpfully, um, helpfully I, I, I don't know if we get to an asymptotic, not asymptomatic, but asymptotic point of mask wearing in this country when polls are showing in our largest or uh, our largest cities our biggest cities you have compliance with mask wearing at rates that are in the 90s 90% ranges um and our friends at issues and insights take it on today um that the oft repeated claim is that if even yet more people would wear them more often, it would save hundreds of thousands of lives. And Joe Biden says, don't understand how this became political. It became political in this sense, in this sense, that his side told us not to question the science. And when our own scientists started questioning previous scientific statements, they were dismissed. That's how it became political. The science only runs in one direction, according to those who say, trust the scientists or listen to the scientists or all listen only to the scientists. That only seems to run in one direction. There are scientists who don't agree with other scientists on this stuff. For example, the va- as Issues and Insights points out, the vast majority of new cases reported during the spike in coronavirus cases came in the 33 states that already had statewide mask mandates. We noted, too, that most of the remaining states had mandates in place covering their major urban areas. And now there's evidence that the suspicions about masks were dead on. The Danish study people have totally forgotten about when they say the science says masks work. Well, not all of it does. The Danish study, which was the widest of them, the biggest, the largest, best best word there is largest, the largest of these studies included 6,000 participants and it undercut the science behind the mandates. A control group followed social distancing guidelines but didn't wear masks. 
while another group wore highly quality surgical masks, and it found no statistically significant difference between the two groups. The re- quote from the um, quote from the study: the researchers concluded that mask wearing is compatible with a range of outcomes, from a forty-six percent reduction to a twenty-three percent increase. So when he says, I don't understand how it's become political, it's because you made it political by curbing and silencing scientists who question your scientists. And it's kind of like this. When you're focused on doing things that don't work and all your energy and input is there and, and they don't work, but that's the focus, that's the mandate, that's the fierce urgency – you're missing the things that do. You're missing the things that do. That's the problem here. One more thought on this before I move on. Um, and Andy Biggs joins us. You know, the press beat up Donald Trump pretty good about his, I don't know, if you want mixed messaging or casual speak about how to mitigate the coronavirus and conflicting, perhaps conflicting messages when it came to the issue of masks. Um, Are they going to call out Joe Biden for doing something worse than Donald Trump did when it comes to masks, which is demonstrating the wrong use of them, which he does in almost every speech he talks about them. In almost every speech, Joe Biden demonstrates the wrong use of them. He picks it up and puts it down and picks it up and puts it down, pauses to cough into his hand, violating CDC guidelines, several times, picks it up, puts it down. That is the exact, the precisely wrong way to handle a mask. Are they going to talk to him about this? Are they going to beat him up for it? Or is it only Donald Trump who didn't do that? By the way, did you see what Gallup said about Donald Trump today? Every year the Gallup organization releases the results of its poll asking Americans who they most admire. Um, For the last several years, President Barack Obama was the most admired man and Michelle Obama was the most admired female in America. Well, this year Mrs. Obama kept it, but there's a new most admired man, according to Gallup, who beat out Barack Obama. You know who it is? President Donald Trump. You bet. 18% of those surveyed named Donald Trump the most admired man in America, while 15% named, not Joe Biden, Barack Obama. In third place at 6% is Joe Biden, followed by... Oh, gosh, you're going to faint, but you know it, who it would be followed by, don't you? Anthony Fauci. There's, I, I bet there are Anthony Fauci bo- bobbleheads. I should look. I bet there are. He has become such a cult figure. <laughs> I bet there are Anthony F- Fauci dolls. I bet there are. I bet there are. Can I say dolls? What is it when it's a male action figure, inaction figure? I bet there actually are. Um Pretty good. After that, a wildly varying set of people scored 1% each. Elon Musk, Bernie Sanders, Bill Gates, LeBron James, and the Dalai Lama. Boy, that would be a party, wouldn't it? 
Elon Musk, Bernie Sanders, Bill Gates, the Dalai Lama, LeBron. Andy Biggs coming right up. We will be right back.